Second service, small but mighty. Woohoo. All right. Isaac usually is done with his painting during the first service, so you just get to see the aftermath. But we, we, I, I forgot to get him a smaller canvas, and all he had was this giant canvas. So he's going to keep painting, uh, which is wonderful. This is, uh, if you're new with us, one of the ways that we worship and express uh, is through the arts. And Isaac and I often during the week or even the night before talk about what the message is going to be, and then if he has inspiration about something that would add dimension to it. He comes and paints, so you guys get to see him in action second service today. We went on a a long backpacking trip, just a few of us this weekend, um, and he's in better shape than the other, uh, myself and the other guy that went, so, uh, but still, when when he bends over to paint low, notice he hasn't painted much on the bottom, because it hurts a lot. Uh, Yeah, I thought I heard some creaking when you were... Thank you for ibuprofen. Thank you, Jesus, for, yes, creating ibuprofen, so... Um, We're in a series right now called Unexpected, and it's about the surprising nature of the kingdom of God. And what we've been doing is countering and contrasting the kingdom of this world, the kingdom that we live in, the one that everybody kind of buys into and the direction that it goes, with the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. It's the story that God invites us into, a way of living and loving. It's very different from the kingdom of this world And when we pray the Lord's Prayer like we just prayed, we do pray, thy kingdom come. It's a part of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And it's something that we need to pray constantly and again and again because we live in the kingdom of this world. We live in a world that sends each and every one of us a constant pressing message every single day of our lives. And the message is this. If you work hard enough, if you climb high enough, if you're strong enough, clever enough, and maybe even lucky enough to accumulate a big pile of stuff, you will be, by the accumulation of this big pile of stuff, you will be secure and you will feel safe. And that's the message of the kingdom of this world. And the message of the kingdom of this world gets preached to us in ways that say, listen, do all of those things well enough and you can engineer your own security. John Ortberg calls it the Human Security Engineering Project. (laughs) And I think it's pretty safe to say that we live in a culture that's bought into that message of the kingdom of this world, hook, line, and sinker, including us. And so today what I want to do, a little different than a normal message or sermon, is I want to tell us the story of two cities. And both of these cities existed in Jesus' day. And one of these cities is a picture of doing life by chasing after the kingdom of this world. And the other city shows us the unexpected, subversive, unstoppable power of the kingdom of God. And typically in a sermon, I'll uh, have a lot of scripture or text right up front and we'll unpack it, but we're going to flip that around uh, this time. So the first thing I want to do, this is sort of indulging my archaeological Bible nerd side, so be patient with me. I'm trying to make it interesting, so um, uh, give me feedback later if if it missed, if I swing and miss. Um, But the first city that I want to tell you about is the city called Sepphoris. Now, if you've never heard of Sepphoris before, you don't have to feel ignorant. I hadn't heard of Sepphoris until long after I'd graduated from Bible college. The city of Sepphoris, even though it was in Israel, in Galilee, uh, it's never even mentioned in the Bible. And what I know about Sepphoris, I'm deeply indebted to some resources by N.T. Wright and uh, Peter Richardson and his book Herod and also John Orberg, who I'll quote, 
And most of what we know about Sepphoris today is stuff from recent archaeological digs in the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, Sepphoris was built by Herod Antipas, who, like his father, Herod the Great, anybody, where do we know Herod the Great from? Christmas story. It's coming. It's okay. It's com- Christmas is soon, so it's, we'll give you a pass on that one. Um, he was a builder. Uh, Herod the Great was a builder of great cities. And so at the age of 12, uh, Herod the Great sent his 12-year-old son, uh, Herod Antipas, to Rome to be educated. Now, in Rome, Caesar, who was the emperor of Rome, he was a builder as well. And Caesar knew all about building as a monument to his personal wealth and demonstrating his power. So as a young man, Herod Antipas learned about city building from the master, from Caesar himself. Now, when Herod the Great died, his dad dies, Antipas comes back to Galilee in Israel and decided that he too would build a capital city and that Sepphoris would be a monument to his wealth and to his power. Sepphoris was a large city for its day with around 30,000 people living there. Sepphoris had an elaborate sewage system that ran underneath the city with, with aqueducts, two large reservoirs for providing water to the people of Sepphoris. Even when there was severe drought everywhere else, in Israel. And there was nothing like this city of Sepphoris in all of Israel. Antipas, um, he also in this city, he, he built an enormous palace for himself. There was also a huge gymnasium, by the way, gymnasium means place of nakedness, so there's a little Greek history there. Um, there were public baths, they had pools lined with marble. Sepphoris also had archives, a bank, a large temple, a theater. And then also an amphitheater that seated four to 5,000 people. Josephus was a historian from that era. He called Sepphoris the ornament of Galilee. And remember, this is just in the land of Israel itself. It's within Israel. Now, the way they laid out Sepphoris was the way that you would lay out all great Roman cities on a grid. And there was a north and south street right down the middle of this grid. This was the main street, and it was 44 feet wide. Like, they didn't have cars or trucks, but this street, the main street, was 44 feet wide, and it was paved in stone. So it was like a freeway, but without cars. Now, in Sepphoris, the rich and powerful people, this is why the street's important, they lived in the center of the grid, Right, So the center of the grid uh, would make it obvious what your social status was uh, according to where you lived. And the closer you were to the center of the grid, the more you mattered, and the more successful you obviously were at engineering your own safety and security. So whether you were young or old, the obvious goal in Sepphoris was to do whatever you could do to continually press toward the center of things in this city. It would like be having, uh, you know, today having the goal of living in a certain neighborhood. And once you get to Agritopia, I mean, once you get to one of those neighborhoods, um, just by virtue of living there, it says something about how important you are. Can you tell the neighborhood I want to live in? Okay, all right, so... Now, building this extravagant city in the middle of Galilee obviously took some serious money, like a lot of money. So how do you suppose a a guy like Antipas would get this money? Any guesses? Taxes, yeah. Antipas knew a lot about taxes. 
So there was the temple tax, which actually went to the Sadducees in Jerusalem. But on top of that, there was a land tax. There was also a poll tax. So just for being alive in Galilee, you had to pay a poll tax. Uh, There were fees. There were taxes on roads, on bridges, on market goods. And all of these were increasingly uh, uh, collected, or they were collected by an increasingly wealthy group called the publicans. Now, the publicans would often use these funds to build really fancy Roman country clubs with golf courses, and they were called Republicans. So, but um, all right, just kidding. Just making sure you're awake in the middle of the uh, <coughs> archaeology lesson here. Um, so, historians estimate that between 70 and 80 percent of a person's income in Galilee went to Antipas through taxes. 70 or 80 percent. So in Jesus' day, there was no middle class. Uh, There was a very small group of very rich people, and there was a very large group of very poor people. Now, Antipas was good at what he did. In fact, historians estimate that he personally owned between one-half and two-thirds of the land in all of Galilee, like the whole state, not just Sepphoris. And in other words here, Antipas was quite successful at what Ortberg called the Human Security Engineering Project. And by the standards of the kingdom of this world, he was very secure. He was very safe. He was very important. But the problem, at least for him, the problem is that Antipas was a temporary king of a temporary kingdom. And he looked really, really big for a really, really short period of time. Right, so there we go. That's Sepphoris. Now, the second place I want to talk to you, in contrast to Sepphoris, is a little village called Nazareth. Now, most of us know that Nazareth is the town that Jesus grew up in. And what I didn't know until studying this is that, that Nazareth was only about three or four miles away from Sepphoris, real close by. And it makes for a really interesting contrast. Now, I don't know how you picture Nazareth in your imagination, so um, we're going to play a little game show here. Just keep the answer and think to yourself for a minute here. What would you, we're going to guess at what you would think the population of Nazareth was, was as Jesus grew up. So we're going to put it on the screen here. We're going to have you pick a number. It's kind of like guessing the attendance at the Diamondbacks game. So now whisper over to your neighbor and tell them what you think your guess is, okay? Go ahead. Just Some of you aren't playing. Go ahead. Whisper to your neighbor what you think the number is there, right? Everybody know how to play. All right, how many of you said A, 20,000? Okay, nobody on that one. Um, how about E? We'll start down here. E, how about somebody said two? Anybody think there's two people? All right, well, so far you guys are brilliant. Uh, how about back up here to B, 12,000 people? Were there 12,000? A few of us? Yeah, yeah. How about uh, 2,000? Anybody think maybe 2,000 is the number? More of us, 2,000? There were actually, bang, 200 people in all of Nazareth. Um, That's less than adding this church service to the first one. That's less people than we have in two services. I mean, it's not that many people. It's a small town. Not only was it small, it was ignored. So again, Josephus, the best-known historian of that day, he he mentioned um, 45 different cities in this region of Galilee, but he never once mentions Nazareth. Also, in ancient rabbinic writings, the Mishnah and the Talmud, 63 towns in Galilee are mentioned in those writings, 
But not once is Nazareth ever mentioned. See, all of Nazareth could fit on about 10 acres of land. So to give you an idea here, we've got about four and a half acres here at the church. So double our land, and that's about the size of Nazareth. Not a real big place. There were no public buildings in Nazareth, unlike Sepphoris, which was close by. There were no paved roads here. There was no sewage system, no tiled roofs, no marble floors were ever excavated from Nazareth. There were no metal cups that have ever been found, no metal bowls either. The people in Nazareth lived on bread, olives, some vegetables, and occasional fish. Skeletal remains of the people that they've dated back to the time of Christ, those skeletal remains reveal regular deficiencies in iron and protein. So in Jesus' town, the way he grew up and where he grew up, a case of the flu, a bad cold, an infected tooth was often fatal. In the town where Jesus grew up, half of the population died at childbirth, and the average life expectancy in Jesus' day of people in Nazareth was their mid-30s. So, you know, I'd be about done, right? <laughs> A decade ago. Uh, Ryan would be uh, an old man. Yeah, there we go. Go, Ryan. See, Jesus grew up in poverty, N.T. Wright says, we do not have an accurate picture of Jesus if we don't understand this one thing about him. He was a Jewish peasant. That was his life. So, I mean, if we, you know, picture Jesus and his family in contemporary American terms, which I think we sometimes tend to do, we picture them as small business owners with dreams of upward mobility and financial security. Uh, yeah, we got the wrong idea. That's not quite it. See, there was nobody, nobody in Nazareth who was climbing the corporate ladder. Nobody in Nazareth hoped that their kids would go to college or were dreaming of retiring to a nice, warm climate. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm just trying to give us some perspective on Jesus' world that he grew up in. And those things weren't on Jesus' radar. See, mostly what those folks hoped for was that they wouldn't die too soon that they would somehow figure out how to pay 70 to 80% of their income to taxes and just to find a way to survive. Like, that's life in Nazareth. And Jesus spent 90% of his life in Nazareth, and it shaped him. Like, it, it formed him. Jesus was shaped by growing up in a place like Nazareth. And you know what, just being honest here, thinking about this, like Jesus was shaped by growing up in Nazareth, but I've been shaped by growing up in a culture much like Sepphoris. I mean, I've been shaped in ways that I don't even know that I've been shaped by that, and it's, it's shaped me, and it's shaped you too. Like, think about this. Growing up in Sepphoris is where I've had my understanding about what a want is and what a need is, and then I've gotten them all mixed up, just like you have. <laughs> because we, most of us, not all of us, but most of us here, grew up in Sepphoris. See, Sepphoris has formed my idea of what a need is, and I get real upset when I don't get my way. Sepphoris has shaped my understanding of what I must have in order to be content. 
Zephyrus has formed my understanding even of what I thought God owed me and what he should provide. I mean, you know, think about this. In the Lord's Prayer, we prayed, give us this day our daily bread. But honestly, like, who in this room is going to be satisfied with bread, you know? Not me. I mean, I wouldn't. Like, give me some bread. It's because I've been shaped by Sepphoris. That's what's formed me. So I have expectations and demands about what the good life looks like. And I think we all do. And it just makes me wonder about some things. Like, like I wonder if Jesus grew up with different expectations and demands about what God would do for him than I have. Like, I wonder if as a little boy he prayed for daily bread differently than I pray for daily bread. I'm pretty sure he did, by the way. Um, so, all right, Doug's fine. What are we supposed to do here? Leave Sepphoris, feel guilty about being rich Americans, which, by the way, it doesn't matter what your income level is. If you live in America, you're in the top percentage of wealth in the world. So are we supposed to feel guilty about that? <clears throat> And my answer to that question would be, no, no, that would be a waste. And, and hear me, there is some false guilt around that stuff, and it's absolutely a waste because I live in Sepphoris and so do you. So the question I want to ask is, what would Sepphoris look like if the kingdom of God came to Sepphoris? Because I don't think I'm supposed to leave Sepphoris, neither are you. I don't think I'm supposed to go live in a hut, although my wife wouldn't mind, but you know... And she'd come with me, right, babe? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. But I don't think we're supposed to go live in a hut. I don't think you are either. But, but what if? What if the kingdom of God came and invaded Sepphoris? I mean, lots of Christians, especially American Christians, pray things like, Lord, help me get to Sepphoris. That's why I'm going to college and working my tail off so I can get to Sepphoris and I can have a taste of the American dream. So, God, when I get to Sepphoris, help me be at the very center of things so, so I can be rich and secure and important. And if you do this for me, God, I, I promise to give you all the glory. Amen? Um. Nobody says that necessarily out loud, <laughs> but we angle that way. Our culture angles that way. And again, by the way, I want to keep this really balanced because there are people who God gives wealth to and puts in places of power. That's a real thing. So, but I think where we get into trouble is when we as Christians act like God owes us prosperity. Like when, and then what happens when we don't get that Sepphoris dream come true thing, all of a sudden we start wondering, like, well, does God even care about me or not? I mean, that's how it gets twisted. I mean, just, you know, think about this. A lot of people demand that God gives them prosperity. And, and think about demanding that God give you prosperity or, or twisting Scripture to say that God owes it to you to make you rich and then imagine a 12-year-old peasant Jewish boy from Nazareth listening to me make a goofy request like that. Don't you think, like, he'd hear my prayer and be like, huh, what? You demand what? <sighs> Sepphoris and Nazareth. Sepphoris, uh, a monument to humanly engineered security built high on a hill. Nazareth, a small town of desperate poverty. And these two towns are only a few miles apart. 
Josephus, the historian again, he called Sepphoris the ornament of Galilee. But do you know what Nazareth um, was called by the rest of the people in, in, or I'm sorry, do you know what Sepphoris was called by the people that lived in Nazareth and in the rest of Galilee? Sepphoris was called the city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Can you imagine, I mean, just even being Jesus as a little boy, he's playing with his friend, he kind of wanders outside the village and looks up the hill at Sepphoris. He had to do that. Um, he probably went to Sepphoris. In, in Matthew chapter 6, we're told that Jesus and his father were carpenters. And the word for carpenter is the Greek word tecton, which tells us that Jesus probably not only worked with wood, but tecton says he also worked with stone. So some people speculate that as a carpenter, Jesus probably worked at Sepphoris one time or another with his father. Like Nazareth was too small to have enough work for a carpenter to make a living. So it's very likely that Jesus, Jesus and his father Joseph worked on Sepphoris. And historians tell us that Antipas regularly conscripted laborers and tectons to work on the buildings in Sepphoris. So it's a safe bet that Jesus worked on Sepphoris probably more than once as a young man, no doubt with his father. And I wonder if when he was there, he noticed even more clearly the incredible gap, the incredible gap between the rich and the poor. And I'll bet that that experience shaped him. I mean, just picture it. He grew up as a peasant three miles away, three miles away from luxury and wealth, but it might as well have been 1,000 miles away because he would never have any of it. And this is just a guess, but traveling to this rich city would almost undoubtedly have made him think, you know, <laughs> Sepphoris, yeah, yeah, it's just about as good as it gets. You can't do any more, I'm sure he thought to himself. You can't do more to engineer your own security than what this Antipas guy has been able to do. It's interesting, though. When we read the words of Jesus, in spite of his experience growing up and watching all of this stuff, that he never did envy them. He never did hate them. Like many of his countrymen hated the people of Sepphoris or what Sepphoris stood for, the money, the power, and some of them decided, uh, we're going to get it for ourselves, even if it means killing everybody who has the money so we can have the money. But not Jesus. He, he didn't aspire to it. He, he certainly didn't preach a gospel that promised it, even though some would lead you to believe that. He didn't envy them. He didn't hate them. He didn't try to be like them. Why? Because Jesus was living in a much bigger story than what Antipas could conceive or Sepphoris could contain. Now, let me ask you a question. Before this talk, how many of you have heard of Sepphoris before? Anyone? A couple folks? Yep. Um, you know what's interesting about that? In Jesus' day, everybody had heard of Sepphoris. Right? Sepphoris is the city set on a hill. Sepphoris is the big story. Let me ask another question. How many of you before this morning had ever heard of Nazareth? Oh, well, weird. All of you have heard of Nazareth. Isn't interesting, isn't it? Because in that day, nobody had heard of Nazareth. Like, what's that about? 
Why is it the town that in Jesus' day everybody knew about, nobody knows about today, but in the town in Jesus' day that nobody knew about, everybody knows about today? See, it's, it's because something was going on, and something is always going on in the kingdom of God that many of us don't see or notice. See, something was going on in this tiny, poor, insignificant town that was a part of a much bigger story than what Antipas or Sepphoris could imagine. And, and it's something that presses on the question and raises the question on what we are pressing on as a church community here at Hope Covenant and in this series about who is really safe and secure and who is really at risk. Because 2,000 years ago, Antipas looked to be the safe one. Like 2,000 years ago, Antipas looked like the secure one. Antipas had done as good a job as ever had been done by anybody at engineering his own security. But as it turns out, he was living in a very small story that looked really big at the time. But he was just a temporary king of a temporary kingdom. And in reality, it was a Jewish peasant from nowhere, Nazareth, who was the safe one, who was the secure one, who was the key figure in the big story of the kingdom of God. So maybe here's the real questions. For us, what story are we living in? Whose kingdom do we serve? And where does real security come from? And, and as I even say that, I just know that there's bad things happening to people in this room even right now. I mean, I know for a fact that there's bad stuff happening in our room. There's people in this room even in the last week or month that you've lost a job or you've got family members that have lost a job or you've had health struggles, maybe lost your home, your marriage, lost someone that you love. We've, as a family here, lost Shirley. Some have lost their sense of safety, their sense of security. And by the way, if none of those things that I just mentioned have happened to you, maybe something else has happened to you. And if it hasn't, at some point, it probably will. That's just how life works. And it definitely happened to Antipas. Now, get to the text. And hear these words, this scripture out of Matthew 6.19. Remembering now what we know about how Jesus grew up. And does it change how we see this verse or hear this verse uh, differently than before we thought about how Jesus grew up? Matthew 6.19, Jesus says all of what... I just said this way, don't store up treasures here on earth where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty, where thieves break in and steal. Whew, he's thinking about Sepphoris maybe even. Store your treasures in heaven where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty, where they will be safe from thieves. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Remember, they were in poverty. This means something different. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. But your heavenly father knows that you need them. And in light of this tale of two cities, I would say it this way. Don't waste your life trying to build another Sepphoris. Don't do it. And it's not because Sepphoris is inherently evil, because it's not. It's because Sepphoris doesn't last. 
It's all a part of a small story and it has no real power to, to make you safe or secure. See, Jesus watched growing up. He watched Sepphoris from a distance every day. And people ran after this human security engineering project. And he didn't envy it. He didn't hate it. Because he knew it was doomed. It doesn't work. And I think that as we learn to follow Jesus in the story of God, one of the things that God begins to do in our heart is he begins to change what we treasure and what we really truly value. And I sometimes get glimpses of this process of how he changes what we treasure. And, and, and I imagine it's like the process of weaning a child where less and less we feel satisfied with things that can't give real life and have no substance anymore. And more and more we start to feel a hunger rising in us for something that has more substance than what we've been pursuing up until now to make us feel safe and secure. And living in God's story, we begin finding ourselves starting to treasure things like generosity. We begin to treasure things like, like feeding a hungry child and seeing people who are sick or homeless served and healed and loved. We, we begin to treasure leaving behind the pursuit of Sepphoris so that we can care for refugees, that we can care for racial reconciliation, that, that we can pay attention to, to kids. Um, I mean, even those of you, us, that are empty nesters and don't have kids, we begin to look at the kids and the teens here at Hope Covenant and go, no, no, these are our kids. These are our kids from our church family. And we begin to care for those kids both inside and outside of our walls. And, and we begin to treasure seeing them included and, and seeing frightened kids become comforted. These are our kids. We treasure that. And eventually we begin to treasure, really treasure, the very thought that we could be free from the prison of Sepphoris. And we begin to treasure the idea of finding ways to meet the needs of Nazareth. Let's finish by looking back at Sepphoris. Look at and remembering how Jesus saw all of this as he grew up. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling his followers, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives life, light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before men and women that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Two phrases from this. Jesus says here, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Guys, here's why you're the light of the world. God has no intention on giving up on this world and just zapping us out of here. When Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, God, he was saying, here's how I want you to pray. God, bring what's going on up there down here. Your kingdom come to earth. Your love, your compassion, your justice, your mercy, your light invade this world. And in this dark place where we live, as dark and evil as our world sometimes looks, 
as we show his love, even this dark world will progressively more and more be flooded with the light of his kingdom. And that light is you and that light is me. You are the light of the world. And then he said, a city on a hill <laughs> cannot be hidden. Again, remember when Jesus was a Jewish peasant boy growing up in Nazareth, that's what they called Sepphoris, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But as he grew up, Jesus learned that although everybody admired Sepphoris, Jesus knew that Sepphoris was not the true city set on a hill, not really. Because he knew the true city set on a hill would be a community of people. Uh, people who were beginning more and more to desire and learn how to live in the much bigger story of the kingdom of God. And imagine that, that as they began and as we begin to live that way, the strangest things begin to happen. Very slowly at first, uh, us people in Sepphoris started noticing the people in Nazareth. I mean, until the kingdom broke through on the people of Sepphoris, they didn't even know that Nazareth existed. You know, I walked by them every day. I just didn't, I didn't see them. But when the kingdom comes, people in Sepphoris start to notice the people in Nazareth. And when love comes to town, people in Sepphoris start to care for the needs of Nazareth. And they, the, the, the people who have much begin to share it and give it and begin to bless and build and heal and help those who have little. See, all of them begin, all of us begin to love and trust and serve each other. Those who have little and those who had much. And they didn't need to blow their horn. They didn't need to advertise it in the paper. They didn't need to announce it on TV. But somehow the people outside of the walls of this little community begin to notice. And why do they notice? Because what was happening, what is happening here, just couldn't be hid. See, when the kingdom really does break out, you can't hide it. Everybody will be watching. It will be a city set on a hill. And Hope Covenant, um, we're a part of that city. And we can be more and more a part of that city on a hill. Because although you and I live in a culture very much like Sepphoris, where social status is measured according to where you live. The closer you are to the center of the grid, the more you matter, the more successful you are at engineering your own status and security. Instead of that kind of separate culture, what if we put that aside and follow Jesus? We follow Jesus in his story. So here's our, our questions. This is for us to ponder throughout this week. Where do I truly believe real security comes from? What story am I living in? And whose kingdom do I serve? Am I trying to live the Sephiroth dream? Or am I willing to set that aside and pursue being a part of the true city on a hill? The true city where we love and bless and serve and heal and help a place where imperfect people belong, where, where God moves, where lives change, where love acts. What story will you be a part of? 
And I think one day, one way that we can be reminded of that in the smallest of ways is to pray those words of the Lord's Prayer regularly and to think them through when Jesus said, pray this way, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, right here, right now. And, you know, sometimes when we're growing up, especially if we grew up in church, you know, you say the Lord's Prayer, and it sounds, some, sometimes it sounds kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance as a little kid, you just say it a bunch of times, you have no idea what you're praying. Uh, but as we slow down and enter in and learn to pray this way, when we finally see what it is that we are praying, it ain't the pledge. <laughs> um, Thy kingdom come is a life-changing, life-transforming prayer. It's an invitation for God to lead us into the big story. And if you want to follow the way of Jesus, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask all of us to stand so we can pray together in closing this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. So will you stand with me? And let's pray these words together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.